I'm Miriam Nisbet. I'm legislative counsel with the American Library Association. And we have a, a wonderful panel this morning. We're going to start off with a presentation by Rebecca Tushnet, who formerly was with the uh, New York University School of Law and has now moved to Georgetown Law School, and we're happy to have her back in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, we've heard uh, quite a bit since last night and again this morning about um, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, changes in the law that um, provided protections for copyright owners without uh, allowing for uh, similar uh, protections or a greater expansion of exceptions and limitations, particularly for libraries. Um, and we find ourselves with the changes in the law, um, with technological changes and digital locks, um, and then with licensing sort of in our own Bermuda Triangle. Uh, Rebecca is going to talk about, in that context, post-DMCA, what is fair use today? Thank you, and I want to thank the conference organizers for the opportunity today. Um, I'm probably going to be the least practical speaker you'll hear from, um, and I can only hope that you'll take uh, what I'm speculating about and um, turn it into reality in one way or another. I don't want to repeat too much of what's in the paper, I'll maybe summarize what I think is going on in the law and engage in some speculation about what the trends mean. Uh, my topic is fair use since the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which I always say should have been called the Digital 15 Minutes Act because that's about as long as it addressed uh, the key questions um, that you know, face the technology and information communities. So I've been thinking about uh, fair use in the context of the DMCA. Of course, the DMCA claims uh, formally in its text not to affect fair use in any way, to leave intact fair use as it applies to copyright, since um, anti-circumvention, which is my specific DMCA topic, um, is a para-copyright right. It doesn't, uh, you can violate it without infringing copyright, you can infringe copyright without violating it. So how do these two things interact if they are formally distinct? So there are three things, roughly speaking, that one might want to do with a copyright work. Um, you access it is the first. In other words, read, watch it, listen to it. And this is kind of a new category, at least a new formalized category. Access used to be sort of like breathing the air around us. You know, it was a book. You had it. You could look at it. Uh, Fred asked last night in whose interest technology is designed. Uh, and he was talking about new technology like the DVD player. But I actually think the question goes deeper than that. You can ask in whose interest was the book designed. We didn't need to ask that in the past, in the, certainly in the recent past, because um, there didn't seem to be a huge conflict of interest going on. But think, think further back. Uh, in whose interest was it to have the Bible in Latin and not in the vernacular, right? Books uh, were technologies, too, uh, and it was a huge leap forward uh, for some people and a huge assault on power for others to have the Bible in vernacular, in English, uh, or in uh, other tongues. 
Uh, and that was a question of power, of architecture and design, uh, as well as what I now call a question of access. So the second thing, um, which is probably more conventional and familiar, you might want to do with the work is share it, right? distribute it, perhaps by sending an ephemeral copy through the internet, or even by distributing a permanent copy. Uh, the final thing uh, is change it. You might want to take a bit for a research paper or a parody or a review. Now, what I see as the big change in fair use law over the past decade uh, is a focus in legal doctrine on the third, the idea of change, as the sole compelling justification for fair use protection. And here I'm speaking of fair use formally and not the other exceptions that Peter uh, uh, so carefully went over. Um, and I think maybe a problem that the people in what I would call the sort of pro-public domain side are having is that we, we have yet to fully articulate that we are trying to defend two separate things, access and sharing, uh, and changes in fair use law are making it harder to defend sharing, harder to explain what's good about giving people copies of things so they can have them for themselves, and changes in technology, particularly with digital rights management, are making it harder to defend access uh, at the same time. And we may have to defend those in two different ways. So how did we get here? Well, um, as I was saying about uh, the nature of, of books as technology, technological change makes aspects of our artifacts that were always present, um, like the fact that language is a code, that uh, books do control access in certain ways, and they could be configured to control access in other ways. They could be just all written in Latin. Um, so those things can become more salient with technological change, um, certain aspects. As applied to law, uh, change means that we look at old precedents in new ways. Uh, usually there are a few plausible reasons for any given decision. Um, when facts change so that some of those reasons apply and some of them don't, we have to figure out, courts and legislatures have to figure out which reasons are the ones that make the difference. So uh, I've been thinking about this as a way in which change breaks down, decomposes, our legal doctrines into separate strands. Uh, and the example I started thinking with, uh, about was Fourth Amendment law, search and seizure law. Um, I'm afraid this won't necessarily be as useful to uh, our non-U.S. colleagues, but the Fourth Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution prohibits searches uh, and seizures, unreasonable searches and seizures. The court uh, has said there's a warrant requirement. You have to get a warrant from a judge um, to do many searches and seizures. Uh, and one question that arose with the telephone, the new technology is, so if someone puts a tap on the wire, doesn't enter your property, but taps the, the wire that's uh, going out in the street, uh, is that an unconstitutional search unless they have a warrant? Telephones, of course, were unknown at the time the Constitution uh, was written, and so there's nothing in there about them. And from one perspective, the, the way the courts first analyzed the problem 
uh, wiretap didn't have anything to do with an unconstitutional search because searches were about coming onto your property and doing something to you and doing something to the wire which you didn't know uh, didn't implicate those rights. But there's another perspective which is uh, the protection against warrantless search and seizure is designed to protect privacy, to protect private conversations. The telephone changed the way private conversations were had. And so to get the same protection um, that people of earlier generations enjoyed, we need protection against wiretaps. Um, the telephone just changed what privacy meant. And so the courts were forced to decide which mattered, physical proximity, um, you know, physical sanctity, or the expectation of privacy in conversation, uh, and eventually the courts went with the latter. Uh, a similar thing is going on with changes in the way information is distributed, uh, whether you call it copying or performance or transmission, whatever. And the thing is, and this happened very clearly in the Fourth Amendment, that the new justification, um, which was the expectation of privacy, didn't just reach out to protect new kinds of conversation. It reached back. And when courts confronted intrusions, physical intrusions, that didn't seem to interfere with an expectation of privacy, they cut back on protections that had previously existed simply because courts said you can't search physical property. So they were more willing to license government to do things that the old version of search and seizure law wouldn't have allowed. Um, if, you, if physical integrity of the home isn't the key to, uh, to Fourth Amendment protection, then it turns out the police can do something, even if they can't, wiretap, right? And the same thing is going on in fair use law. And again, here I'm speaking of uh, you know, formal fair use, the four-factor test um, under U.S. copyright law. And it, you really saw it in Napster, uh, which I think helps solidify a rhetoric that's inherently hostile to libraries. Um, because the things that were wrong with the copying in Napster um, are what's wrong, so to speak, with uh, what libraries do. Right? Napster involved the free transmission um, in private of individualized collections of music in this case um, that were small scale in the aggregate, but, or small scale, excuse me, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, but large in the aggregate. And in fact, it's no accident that most computers will call your music collection my library. Right? It is my collection. Uh, it is what I have on hand that I have access to at any time. And the National Court, the court analyzed whether this kind of activity could count as fair use. Um, and building on cases that have come before it, it said that, in fact, even though this was free trade, these were commercial uses which counted against uh, finding a fair use. Uh, because the users got for free something for which they'd ordinarily pay. Now, in one sense, this is circular. That's to say, um, the copyright owners wanted money and the users didn't want to give it to them. Um, so they were getting for free something for which they'd ordinarily pay. There's a sense in which 
It's not circular, though. It's more realist. There is, in fact, a market for entire songs in a way that there's not a market for, say, parodies um, or reviews. So that existing market was something for which people would ordinarily pay. Right? Uh, and, of course, this is true of a lot of things libraries do, too. Uh, the Napster court also used its finding of commercial use to presume harm to the copyright owner's legitimate market. Right? There is a robust market. Clearly, people are losing sales, even if they're not losing sales one-to-one. -one. Uh, and it goes beyond that because copyright owners are rushing to develop licensing markets to show they're willing to sell whatever copiers want to take, even if it is, instead of whole albums. Now we'll sell you songs. Even if it is only excerpts, now we'll sell you a license, you know, per page copying license. Um, and with easy licensing, copiers look a lot more like freeloaders. It becomes harder to say that what copiers and what libraries are doing is good for society. Instead, they just seem to be fighting over who's going to get the money. Right? It's not, it's not about freedom. Right? It's about who's willing to pay. So this sort of change in the licensing market and in the attitude towards what's commercial use um, leads to a narrow definition of fair use in, in many cases, basically in all cases of what I call pure copying, what, uh, other, what courts have called non-transformative copying. Um, so the flip side of that is it's not all you know, losses for defendants. Uh, instead, what we've seen is a shift to greater protection for uh, transformative uses, uses that take bits and pieces, uh, change it in some way through parody or commentary. Um, and so what you get uh, in, in court cases a lot these days is states, statements that transformation is central to a fair use defense. Uh, and this can help when the defendant looks like an angry person, a person with an agenda um, that conflicts with that of the copyright owner. And it doesn't even uh, me mean that they have to clearly change the work necessarily, as long as they're focusing on just one work. Uh, an example I saw, uh, uh, for, uh, for example, the copying of the statements of the Diebold election, uh, people in emails about the problems with their system. Right. Those were disseminated by people who didn't like electronic voting as it's currently configured. That gave them a good uh, case to be fair users because they were critics. They were taking something for a, a new purpose uh, and giving it a new context. Uh, but that's, again, that's not the way a library or many institutions behave with respect to information. They don't pick that way, and they certainly don't pick with an agenda of tearing down what it is they're trying to disseminate widely. So we have a rhetoric that says critics, little guys, guys on soapboxes um, deserve special protection in fair use law. They're kind of like they're, uh, um, you know, dissenters in classic First, Amer First Amendment doctrine. Um, the, the government or a private party wants to censor them, and censorship we know is bad. But what we don't have is a rationale to explain why it's important, why it's fair for people to be able to access and share works without permission 
if they don't have that critical motivation. And I see this as connected to a larger trend in American culture, which is that too much of our rhetoric defends freedom without explaining its relationship to equality. Some of you may recognize the free software slogan, free as in free speech, not free as in free beer. Um, that is supposed to mean, I take it, that free software is about freedom to tinker, to look at the inner workings of software you have access to and change it to suit your needs. Um, but the free software ideology explicitly does not mean that anyone is obligated to hand you a CD with Linux on it. If you can get access to the software, if you have the resources to tinker, if you know how to program, you don't need anyone else's permission. That's what that means by freedom. Just go ahead. I like that ideology in general, but the free as in free speech slogan in particular always bothered me. It seems to assume that we know what free speech is and that it's okay to make people to pay for free speech just like it's okay to make them pay for a physical copy of a CD. I think this assumption is a mistake and it's a mistake that um, is bad for institutions like libraries in particular. Um, I had always thought that one of the good things about libraries was that you didn't necessarily have to pay to play, right? Freedom to tinker, which is another phrase from the free software movement, is freedom to use the resources you already have any way you want, right? It is my copy of the software like it's my car so I can customize it. But the freedom of a library is freedom to learn, to acquire resources you can use later. If all we mean by freedom is once you have it, you can do what you want with it, uh, that's a pretty cramped definition of freedom. I'd like my freedom to have more quality in it uh, so that we speak of people as having an entitlement to the building blocks of culture so that anyone can tinker if they choose to, but they don't necessarily have to. That is, um, and this is echoing something that's been said earlier today, um, people should be able to just read Dracula or John Stuart Mill. They shouldn't have to tinker with it to get our approval. The impulse behind the idea of transformative abuse is certainly a good one. Uh, and I don't want to argue that it should be rejected. You know, I'm as fond of parodists and critics and reviewers as the rest of us. Um, but there should be room for preserving and transmitting the old. Um, you saw this a little bit in the Sony Betamax case, where at that time the name of transformation was productive use, was the name that the court, that the dissent in Sony in particular used to defend um, a definition of fair use that was anti-pure uh, copying and pro uh, something that gave extra benefits to society. But the problem with the dissent uh, was always, it sort of swept in educational copying as productive use because it has net benefits to society. But those net benefits are always down the line somewhere. Either eventually they're incorporated in a new work, um, or they're not. Or we just get you know, some psychic benefit, some general cultural improvement from having people have access to things. But that's an unsustainable definition of productivity because you don't need a library to get a benefit out of you know, Dracula or John Stuart Mill. If it's important that you should have free access to John Stuart Mill, it's hard to explain why you shouldn't be able to take it from the bookstore as well as the library. 
And that's why um, talking about productivity or transformation, I think, inevitably pushes us to say, well, transformation is good, but copyright owners can always control pure, dis pure reproduction, pure dissemination. And so there's, I think this trade-off has been made fairly explicit in recent doctrine, right? Copyright owners get control over all pure reproduction, uh, in return for which um, we're going to limit their ability to control transformation. And, of course, this means the positive values libraries promote um, are kind of lost in the shuffle. Uh, I don't think it means libraries are going to be directly shut down, but they could easily be left behind. Um, I was looking at a report in the New York Times about Dartmouth College, which is revamping its entire campus to deliver audio, uh, video, and other materials to students wherever they may be. Um, if students get their discussion materials in their rooms instead of on reserve at the library, however, um, various copyright rights, uh, the rights certainly of uh, distribution, of performance, display, public display, public performance, those rights come into play that were never implicated by having a book on reserve. Uh, even though these practices are, in a lot of ways, functionally identical, they're just clunkier, the old ones. Uh, and that means that Dartmouth needs new permissions to do what its old job. I also have seen PBS is experimenting with interactive educational tools. Um, this is, I saved it on my computer actually as lesson in infringement. Um, .html. Uh, they, they, they ask you, students to find pictures um, to bring in, to coordinate with music in a slideshow to help them think about how music conveys thoughts and images and moods. Um, and unfortunately, so they are telling students to create a derivative work uh, as well as they also suggest that you memorialize this in a permanent digital copy. So uh, now we have, a, we have a derivative work and we have direct reproduction. Um, with, this is at the very least possibly illegal and with uh, DRM expanding it may become practically impossible even though it seems to me quite exciting and interesting a way to use the images and sounds that you have uh, available to you for students. Uh, the example I gave in the paper of another exciting new use is the audiobook on iPod. Uh, and I just want to talk about that for just a little bit. Everybody wants to take lessons from the iTunes store. As if we know now what the digital world will look like five years from now because of this one model. Um, I'm not so confident, but because I'm an academic, I'm still going to tell you what I think. Um, the main thing the iTunes store represents to me is that a number of people in uh, the music industry, at least, have come to terms with the idea that you don't need to beat the hackers. You just need to make the legitimate alternatives um, less of a hassle to use than the illegitimate ones. And you can do that through a combination of strategies. There's moral education. I was just reading the Boy Scouts in Hong Kong now have a merit badge um, in, in anti-piracy. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that's coming to other countries near you. Um, so fear of prosecution, fear of viruses from the unauthorized services, and attractive legitimate options like the iTunes Store, um, which has easy navigation, CD comparable prices, and extreme flexibility. 
And this flexibility is what creates the opportunity for libraries, at least at the level of technology, not contract. Uh, the DRM that um, will apply to iTunes allows you to play your song or book on up to five different computers at a time, burn it to CD as many times as you want, and play it on an unlimited number of iPods. It's that last, uh, as I said in the paper, that might let a library do some very exciting things. But I want to examine the overall scheme for a moment. One of the things that Fred von Loman said last night was that consumer anger at limitations was one of the most hopeful signs that copyright battles might finally start to go our way. But the iTunes DRM is carefully designed so that it will almost never make a consumer mad. Right? What ordinary cons consumer wants to play a song on six computers? What consumer will mind not being able to share an AAC file with a friend when she can just burn a CD with the same song? What the technology is directed at, and directed with reasonable precision at, is unlimited dissemination to strangers, not the kind of acts ordinary consumers want to engage in. Um, that does leave, uh, right for now, a hole for the libraries, that unlimited number of devices. Uh, the cost of the device operates, of course, as a check on that. You have to have $100 for every iPod shuffle. Uh, and again, most consumers won't have dozens of iPods. Still, an institution might. Uh, might fill each one up with contents of its choice. So you buy one copy of the new Harry Potter on audiobook and put it on 100, 200 iPods. Uh, and then when that book uh, becomes less popular, you put the new thing on for a total marginal cost per book of $20. That's how much they sell the audiobooks for. And here's a vital lesson. DRM doesn't work in today's market um, without contract. And let me emphasize in today's market, uh, because that might change if content companies manage to train consumers better so they don't get mad at certain things. Consumers demand multiple playability, and companies are willing to work with that because most consumer households can profitably be treated as a single unit. Larger organizations may change the profit calculation, so you have to have a different DRM scheme to make them pay. If you have two DRM schemes, you need a way to sort who gets one and who gets the other, and that means contract. And Apple's lawyers, of course, are not blind to this. Uh, the iTunes store attempts to use contract, as well as DRM, to say who can take advantage of it. And I didn't say this flat out in the paper. I'm sure you could read it between the lines. The library experimenting with downloads from iTunes for its patrons is running a serious risk. I'm sure that Apple and Audible, compared to the MPAA, and the RIA are sweethearts. But, especially as they develop institution-specific models, the library trying to pay end consumer prices is, from their perspective, cheating them of valuable comp compensation. And, as I said, I don't think that fair use, even setting the contract issues aside, offers much protection for the library under the current scheme. Certainly none of the statutory exceptions seem to deal with the case of the library making audiobooks available outside the library. Um, and this looks like a classic example of interference with the market, a market we can be pretty sure is going to develop pretty quickly. So I think we're going to continue to see this, this combination of contract and digital rights management to achieve more together than they ever could separately. And I want to echo the idea that our solutions have to deal with both of those. You can't uh, just pick one. I want to stop for a second, though, and uh, give the, the, the positive argument for digital rights management and contracts. Right? It's not, it doesn't mean everybody has to lose. 
for some users, including some libraries, depending on what their service goals are, it could, uh, the contracts could be cheaper. They could expand access to unpopular works that weren't worth the library's time to buy before. Right? If you have a Lexus or a Nexus subscription, you get a whole bunch of newspapers that you would never ha have subscribed to individually. Um, on the other hand, of course, libraries uh, might not be able to afford the subscriptions forever. If your book budget is cut to zero, they don't come with a truck and take away the books that you already have. Uh, and that is exactly what they do, essentially, with uh, a contract that expires. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is uh, the, what's going on specifically in digital rights management doctrine, um, anti-circumvention doctrine. And I know that garage door openers are not uh, uh, normally topics um, that librarians are concerned about in their professional capacities. Maybe you have one at home. But um, what's interesting to me about the garage door opener case, Chamberlain, is it shows again how institutional and individual interests diverge and how the content industry um, is achieving victories by sort of peeling off the consumers from the institutions with separate interests. And here, Chamberlain, the, the garage door opener manufacturer, made a mistake. It tried to go against the consumers. Uh, and the court proved unwilling to, let, uh, to say, no, consumers can't do with their garage door openers what they want. Uh, they can buy replacement garage door openers. Uh, but it did so by construing copyright law in a very interesting way, by saying that there is a basic access right to something that you've bought. Right? But that access right is completely distinct from the right to copy anything that you've bought. Right? And therefore, uh, a replacement garage door opener that accessed a computer program did not do anything that the copyright law was concerned with. The trouble is, of course, um, that not only do things that libraries want to do involve a fair amount of copying, right? the audiobooks on the iPods involve one reproduction per iPod, but also the structure of copyright rights isn't access reproduction. It's access uh, perhaps, and a whole bunch of exclusive rights, including public display and public performance, which are rights that are implicated when a public institution, an institution available to the public, um, gives, uh, gives out access. So you actually can't separate them out, at least in the public context. You can't separate access from other copyright rights. They go together. Um, and so uh, what looked in Chamberlain like a victory for the consumer um, is only a victory for a particular kind of consumer. And I think it's actually a, a fairly insidious decision in what it says about the basics of access, um, of individual access versus copyright owners' rights to control everything else you might want to do. Um, I am out of time, so end with that, and uh, I hope you guys can think of some better solutions than I have, because I know uh, I, I'm, still, I'm still struggling. <laughs>